Go ahead and have a seat. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to you. If you're watching us online, if you've got a Bible and you want to open it up to Esther chapter 2, we're going to finish that chapter this morning, which is a short chunk from verses 19 down to verse 23. While you get yourself situated, um, I'd like for us to just take a moment. One of the things that scripture commands us uh, to do is pray for our leaders, pray for uh, the, the city in which we live. And so I'm going to expand that out. And in light of the 4th of July yesterday, I'd love for us to spend some time together as a congregation praying for our nation. So if you would join me in prayer. Uh, God, we thank you um, for the fact that you've chosen us to live in this place, uh, in this era. God, we thank you that, um, that that decision is intentional on your part that like we're seeing in the book of Esther, that you're sovereign and you're sovereign over the wins and the wares in our lives. God, we thank you for this nation. Um, God, we thank you for the ideals on which this nation was founded. And God, even though throughout the history of this nation, uh, we haven't been perfect in the upholding of those ideals, God, that they are there and they drive us forward. Um, God, I, I thank you for the people in this nation. God, for each and every individual who calls this place home. God, we thank you for the individuals who lead this nation. We pray that you would give them wisdom, God, that you would give them courage to lead us toward the ideals upon which this nation was founded and to ever move us forward in that. God, we thank you for the individuals who protect this nation. God, they sign up for uh, a life and for a task that uh, many of us are either uh, uninterested or unwilling to do, and they, uh, those individuals do so selflessly and sacrificially, God, and we thank you for them. Lord, I pray that uh, each one of us, as members of this particular church, God, but also as members of the larger church here in America, uh, Lord, that we would see in Scripture the command to uh, do good in this place where you've called us to live. God, that we would be uh, part of extending love and grace to all who call this place home, to all of our neighbors and all of the folks that we live around. God, I pray that our vision, though, would be larger than just this nation. God, that we would see your hand as guiding all of human history, Lord, and that we would also see uh, the command to take the truth of the gospel, not just to those that we live alongside, but to the ends of the earth. God, thank you for this place in which we live, um, the people who lead it, the people who want to be part of leading it. God, thank you for the people who live here. Um, Lord, we praise you for that. We pray that we as a church, we as the church, would be part of moving this nation uh, ever forward. God, that we would be part of what you're doing in this time, not just in this nation, but in the world uh, to spread 
the hope of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. We pray this in his matchless name, amen. Well, what we're seeing in the book of Esther, if you've got yourself opened up there, just a really quick sort of reminder of where we are and what it is that we're walking through is that we're seeing uh, a story here um, about individuals who are used by God sovereignly and providentially to preserve and protect not just God's people, but God's ultimate promise and his ultimate purposes in the world. And one of the unique things about the book of Esther is that the name of God is not ever mentioned in the book, though he is the one obviously driving the book forward. And so we've talked over the last few weeks of this series that that is evidence of a theological truth that God is sovereign and a theological truth that God works through providence. So we're trying to to look at as we take the truth of what uh, scripture has to say in the book of Esther is how does that intersect with our actual lives? If we know that God is sovereign and we know that God works providentially, how does that actually impact the way it is that we live life today in 2020, uh, thousands of years separated from when this uh, book was written, thousands of years separated from when these events took place? David Strain is a commentator on the book of, Ex- uh, of Esther, and he says this, that defining providence is one thing. Discerning providence at work, understanding the design of providence in our lives, that is another thing entirely. If we're willing to think carefully, Esther forces us and pushes us to consider both a theological truth and a practical implication. And the question is this, how big is God? That's theological. What do I know about who God is? What do I believe about how he works and how he functions uh, in the governing of all things? It's also practical. How do I allow that to impact my life? Here's the big point today, that a sovereign God is always sovereign. We're going to spend some time defining sovereignty and providence. We need to have those words matter. We need to have those definitions straight, not just this morning, but Uh, it's helpful to have those words straight when we think about God in all things. We'll see how those two ideas, sovereignty and providence, weave their way into the story, the book of Esther, and we'll see those really start to play themselves out and become apparent in this short chunk that we're looking at today. And then we're going to answer the question, how does the gospel free us to devote ourselves to God's sovereignty and God's providence? We're going to do all that by looking at Mordecai. Let's start with some definitions. Sovereignty. The standard dictionary definition of sovereignty says that sovereignty is a supreme power or authority. Uh, Oftentimes, the king or the queen of uh, a, a monarchy is called the sovereign. They have supreme authority. Now, when we're talking about God, we're talking about something a little bit different than just like an individual who has the ability to make decisions in a place. The theology textbook definition says this, that sovereignty is God's exercise of power over all of his creation. His exercise of power over all of his creation. John Piper says it this way. When we say that God is sovereign, we're not merely saying that God has the power and right to govern all things, but that he does govern all things for his own wise and holy purposes. So it's not just that God could have the power, to exercise over all of his creation. It's that he does and he uses that power 
and exercises it over all of his creation. Providence, then, is this. We used this definition a few weeks ago, that God is always at work, often in invisible and inscrutable ways to both powerfully preserve and sovereignly govern all of his creatures in light of his eternal purposes. That's a mouthful. That comes right out of a theology textbook. Karen Jobis, uh, we've used this quote over the last couple of weeks, that God is omnipotently present even where he is most conspicuously absent. You can think of providence like this. Providence is God seeing to absolutely everything happening that needs to happen in order to fulfill his purposes. Absolutely everything that needs to happen in order to accomplish his purposes, God will see to it happening. Providence is God working in invisible ways to establish his purposes. So sovereignty and providence, two separate but very much related things. God is sovereign. That is a quality that is uh, central to his character. He acts providentially. Another way to think about it would be to say that providence is one of the means by which God enacts his sovereignty. With those in mind, I ask the question again, how big is your view of God? I don't particularly think it's challenging to think of God as being big enough to undertake the large things of scripture. If one is willing to both assert and believe that uh, God is the absolute driving force behind the inspiration and the writing of scripture, then he could certainly bring about the big eternal plans that he wrote about in scripture. If you're willing to believe that this is inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God and that God by the Holy Spirit worked through a, a whole host of authors to bring the Bible to pass, then certainly you could believe that the large things of scripture God could also bring to pass, whether that be the events of the Exodus, the events that took Jesus to the cross, it could, we could be talking about the events that will ultimately take place at the end of all things. We get that if God is God, then God can make his will happen. He can literally bend eternity in order to fulfill his purposes and promises. Here's what I think is the bigger challenge. Is your view of God big enough for him to have had a hand in the person that you stood next to in line at the grocery store? Is your view of God big enough to allow for the fact that he might have been involved in the seat that you got assigned on the first day of class? Is he big enough to have delayed your leaving the house by 15 really annoying seconds because you left your lunchbox on the counter, but those 15 annoying seconds saved you and another car from an accident? Oftentimes, the way we go about our day, when we think about God, what we think he might have been involved in, how we relate to him in the day-to-day, reveals how small we actually think God is. Oftentimes, the space that we give God in our lives is relegated to this time on a Sunday morning. It's relegated to our quiet time or some time that we spend in scripture or prayer on any given day. And then maybe any really large sort of life event that might be going on. But all the daily stuff, we actually betray the fact that we think of God as being quite small because we don't allow any space for him to have been involved in those moments. Or at least we don't think about him as having been involved in those moments. Jump back into this story in Esther. I'm going to start reading in Esther chapter 2 verse 19. It says this, 
When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not revealed her family background or ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders, as she always had while he raised her. Sometimes it can be really helpful to just take any passage of scripture that you're reading and then summarize it in your own words. And so if you were to take those two verses and just make a little summary of what that says, you would essentially be summarizing that we've got a new scene here and this sets that scene. Some time has passed since the events when Esther became queen. We don't know exactly how much time has passed. We know based on some other dates given in the book that this little incident here takes place somewhere in the 7th to 12th year of King Ahasuerus' reign. We don't know exactly when. We also know that there's been either another gathering of women into uh, Ahasuerus' harem, or all the women gathered the first time are still there. That's pretty much all the information that we have. Look at verse 21. During those days... While Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thin and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. If you were to summarize that, you would say, Mordecai overhears a couple of people planning to kill the king. I mentioned the very first week that we looked at the book of Esther, that it would be a good thing to do to just sit down, read the whole thing, start to finish, and mark or make a little note every time you saw something that was a coincidence. This would be one of the first really big incidents of something that looks like a coincidence. But if we're going to understand how big God is and that he is sovereign and therefore always sovereign, that he's working providentially, we have to recognize coincidence as providence. A little bit of context. Mordecai works at the king's gate. When we hear the word gate, we think of the thing on our fence in the backyard. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about something that's more akin to like a city hall. The king's gate is more of an administrative business center, kind of city functioning place. Typically, it would have been attached to the palace in some fashion. And so based on that, we know that Mordecai actually has a position working within what we would today just consider the government. He works at the palace, essentially for the king. That's probably why he had the ability earlier in chapter two to go and check on Esther every single day while she was uh, in the king's harem. So there's Mordecai at work doing his job. Maybe he's hanging out in the break room or something when he hears a couple of coworkers having a conversation. Maybe it started out as like standard work stuff. Larry over in HR has a new toupee. Did you see it? Cindy in payroll is getting a promotion. Did you hear? There are brownies in the break room. Best day ever, right? That kind of thing is going on. And then there are some people talking about the boss. Classic work kind of stuff. Management doesn't have a clue. Stick it to the man. I got passed over for the promotion, that kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden it gets really dark. They're talking about killing the king. And it doesn't sound like they're talking about killing the king in a theoretical sort of way. It sounds like they might have a legitimate plan for attempting to kill the king. There's Mordecai filling up his hydro flask at the water cooler or something. And he overhears that to the side. 
but it's not just that there's some random employee filling up his hydro flask at the water cooler. It just so happens to be the adoptive guardian of who? The brand new queen. Coincidence? No. Providence. God guiding and moving the events of this story toward the place where his people would be preserved and his promises and plans would continue to move forward, which raises a significant question. How do we know when we're in the middle of a moment of God's sovereignty and providence? Well, how big is your view of God? If he's truly sovereign and always sovereign, you're never not in a moment of God's sovereignty. You've never somehow slipped out of the view and the work of God. Every moment that you're involved in is a moment of God's sovereignty. The fact that you're either seated here or you're watching online, God is sovereign over that. How often do we just kind of chalk something up to happenstance or coincidence, to good or to bad luck, when really a very big God is on the move in some sort of way. He's at work. A simple way to take a theological thing and make it practical here. If a sovereign God is always sovereign, then when you have those thoughts, good luck, bad luck, coincidence, happenstance, mentally correct them and then ask yourself, how would I approach this situation differently if I acknowledged that God was the author of it? That there was something that he was doing in the middle of this. Look at verse 22. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. Mordecai overhears that. If you were to summarize this verse, you would say, Mordecai makes a decision to save the queen via Esther. Here's one of the challenges to recognizing uh, practically, that God is sovereign in all of the moments of your life, God is sovereign. If we were to stop ourselves all the time and make that acknowledgement, it would force us to consider, therefore, am I doing all that I can to be obedient in the middle of God's sovereignty of all things? If I just consider something coincidence or happenstance, I can just kind of blaze on by it as if it has no real impact on my life. If God is sovereign over all things and I'm stopping to actually recognize that in any given moment, I've got to wrestle with the fact that in any given moment, now I need to be obedient. Which means this, that as followers of Jesus, we're called to do all the good that you can do in all the places you can land. What do I mean by good? I certainly mean moral good, but it's more than that. I mean good is defined by God's standard, by God's word. That's objective reality. To do good according to God is to act in accordance with his word in any and all situations. The more regularly we, we are in his word, the more familiar we become with it, the easier it becomes to do this on the fly, to be in a moment, recognize that God is sovereign, and then know what the good is that you ought to do in that place at that time. 
there are subjective or more subjective pieces to figuring out what good should we do at any given time. We pray. You've got a relationship with God, not just a textbook that tells you about him. You're in relationship. So you get into a moment, you're recognizing God's sovereignty, but it's a difficult thing. You step back and you pray. Maybe you interact with a family member or a fellow believer. Maybe someone who's a mentor or a discipler, who's wise. You go to them for advice. Sometimes our internal senses can give us like a subjective feeling of whether or not the thing we're about to do is the right thing or the wrong thing. But all of those subjective pieces, even the really wonderful advice you get from a wise person has got to go back through the objective filter of God's word. You're, you're spending time in prayer. You're trying to discern within your own heart the difference between your flesh's desires and the Holy Spirit speaking to you. You go back to the objective reality of God's word. You get advice from someone. You're in a conversation with a family member. You have a sense or a feeling. Anytime a subjective piece is contrary to the objective reality of God's word, the objective reality of God's standard has to win out. We do all the good we can in all the places we land. Question, because this is the situation that Esther and Mordecai find themselves in. What about when you find yourself in a non-Christian place dealing with non-Christian people who honestly might not be interested in your good? Do you still owe them what would be their good? One of the ways that God's sovereignty and providence extends to all the people of the world is through something called common grace. Common grace is what all humanity receives from God in terms of his protection and his care and his love. A beautiful sunrise is common grace. The fact that the human body works so marvelously and wonderfully despite all of its complexity that's a common grace. When you sit down at a restaurant and you take a, a bite of really delicious food, that's common grace. You don't have to be a Christian for any of those things to impact you. You don't even have to acknowledge that God is the giver of those things for him to continue to extend them to you. That's why it's grace. You know, you didn't do anything to deserve that really, really delicious sandwich, but God just made food delicious because it's to his glory and I think because he knew we would appreciate that. That's common grace. One of the ways that he makes that common grace available to all people is through his church. When Christians uphold God's word, are obedient to God's word and live that out in the world around us, all of the world, believing or not believing, becomes the recipient of God's goodness through God's people. When God's people act according to God's word, the world benefits from God's common grace. We'll hit on this more in a few minutes. But what does Mordecai do when he hears about the plan to kill the king? He decides he's going to save the king. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to save a person's life. But it's complicated because this king isn't exactly the most wonderful of rulers. He's not exactly the most just, the most caring, the most loving, the most gentle king that's ever walked on the face of the planet. But God values life. 
Mordecai hears that the king is in jeopardy, and he acts to save the king's life. And by common grace, Ahasuerus wakes up every morning for a bunch of days and is still breathing. Do all the good you can in all the places you land. And carry no expectations with that. More often than not, the world is not going to pat you on the back for your obedience and faithfulness to Jesus. In fact, when you're obedient and faithful to Jesus, there may be times where the world does the opposite and it feels much more like a kick in the shin than a pat on the back. When that happens, you may feel like you're not getting much of a reward for your act of obedience. In fact, you might feel like you're getting punished. In that moment, You might remember the bigness and the sovereignty and the providence of God and think to yourself, wait a minute, shouldn't I be getting a reward for this? And the answer to that, as affirmed by scripture and all of our personal experience, is no. Oftentimes, the world prospers in their wickedness while the faithful suffer in their faithfulness. Psalm 73 verse 3 says that I envied the wicked when I saw their prosperity. That's Asaph, the psalmist. Jim's gonna talk about this more this week when he takes us through chapter three, but suffice it to say this, Esther and Mordecai save the king's life and all they end up with is a footnote in a giant book of other information about the kingdom of Persia. It actually gets even worse for them than that, but I'll, I'll save that for Jim's uh, sermon next week. For this week, we'll leave it at this. Many of us affirm at least verbally or intellectually, that God deals with and has dealt with us on the basis of Christ's work on our behalf. That it was on the cross where uh, I didn't deserve it, Jesus died, and now I'm treated according to Jesus's righteousness, not according to my own sin. And that means that sin doesn't get double punishment. If I sin in some way, That sin has been paid for by Jesus. I'm dealt with according to the righteousness of Jesus. But we kind of fall into this trap of thinking and living as if God deals with us on the basis of our own goodness. So that when we do something obedient or faithful, we think that blessings and rewards are automatically going to follow. That is what the prosperity gospel teaches. And while many of us would deny the prosperity gospel in word, we affirm it in thought and action. We think things like this. Hey, God, I just shared the gospel with the person across the street. Isn't it about the time you dropped some extra cash in my mailbox or something? Or, uh, Lord, did you not see that I handled that potentially explosive situation with my teenager very graciously? Now, would it be so wrong if you could swing me that promotion or do fill in the blank for my child? That's the prosperity gospel. Hey, if you would just be more obedient, maybe give a little more, do a little more that's in line with scripture, then God will necessarily and automatically give you a little more, a little more blessing, a little more of the things that you're asking for. That's not what the gospel teaches. And if that's wrong, then what's the right way to think about these things? If I'm going to discern God's works of providence and then do all the good I can, how do I do so in a gospel-centered and Christ-exalting way? Look at verse 23. Let's finish the passage. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. If you're gonna summarize that, 
you would look at this whole little scene here and you would say, God moves this forward by his own hand. How do we see God as sovereign, see his works of providence, do all the good that we can and do it in a gospel-centered sort of way? We know that the plan of God moves by the hand of God. The key to the whole story of Esther is that God is sovereign, that the Lord is moving forward his plans despite the success or the failure of any of the people involved. Do their choices matter? Yes, absolutely. But are those choices the ultimate determiner of what God will do? No. How do those two things work together? How can humans be in, uh, ultimately responsible for their own choices and yet God be the ultimate determiner of his plan and his purposes? Praise the Lord that he's God and I'm not because that combination is beyond my brain's ability to completely figure out. What we know for certain though is that God is sovereign over all things and humanity is accountable for their decisions. That interplay is challenging to decipher. It's a mystery of God that's full of wonder and beauty to, to contemplate. And if our understanding is of a God who is gloriously big and sovereign, then it doesn't have to be threatening for us to think about how those two things could possibly work together in harmony. Look at some of the complexity that's uh, existed in Esther up to this point. I've mentioned that the story is messy. See the challenges of all of this. The whole situation is wildly warped and broken. It's the worst possible version of the Persian bachelor that anyone could possibly dream up. And everything that happens in the rest of the story is just swimming in that kind of cesspool of brokenness. Esther ends up at the palace. She partakes in the process spends the night with the king, marries him. Did she have a choice? Probably not. She likely would have been killed if she had resisted. But, this is not to cast any sort of like blame or shame onto Esther. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found themselves in a similar do this or be killed kind of situation. And they opted for, if we perish, we perish. pause for a second. It's easy for us to look at something like that, to look at Esther and to think to ourselves, why would she not just plant her flag in the ground and say, I won't do any of this, kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. And I would turn that question on to you or on to myself and say, how many times have you found yourself in a place where the situation was, do this as obedient to my Christian faith or do this other thing and avoid some consequences and maybe you chose the other thing or at least you really had to wrestle through your flesh's pull toward the other thing because, well, I'd like to preserve myself or my status or my position at work or whatever the case might be. Those are insanely complicated situations. And if someone were to write a biography of your life, there would be some moments where you'd have to be honest and say, I didn't make the faith-filled decision. I opted for the thing of my flesh, or I opted for the thing that was easier. Mordecai tells Esther to hide her Jewish faith and heritage, and she does it. Why? Why did he tell her that? Why did she choose to do that? Mordecai finds out that the king is going to die, and he decides to save the king's life. It seems like a good thing, but are you required to spare the life of someone who is a dangerous threat to humanity? 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer during World War II made the opposite decision, decided to join a plot to have Adolf Hitler assassinated. See the difficulty? See the messiness of those things? Now, our circumstances and the stakes in our own lives might not be quite that high at times, but there's difficulty in trying to figure out if God is sovereign over all things, and this is what my life currently looks like, what does it look like to do all the good I can in this particular situation, to entrust that to the Lord, carry no expectations for what my faithfulness and obedience is going to get me, and yet walk forward humbly? It can be incredibly challenging. Sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong. Hopefully, driven by, motivated by, and empowered by the gospel, we're seeking to be obedient in all of our situations. But acknowledging the bigness of God and the grace of the gospel gives us freedom to act obediently in all of our situations. All of it's moving at the hand of God. With the grace of the gospel in view, we can trust that all of our right decisions do nothing to make us more appealing or more lovable in the sight of the Lord and all of our wrong decisions do nothing to make us more unlovable in the sight of the Lord. He sees you through the cross. He sees you through the blood of Jesus Christ. If you've placed your faith in Christ and received the grace of God for the forgiveness of your sin, then you are, as scripture says, hidden in him covered by his blood and his righteousness. And that means that when God looks at you, he looks at you through the perfection of Jesus Christ. And that's never going to change. It will eternally always be that way. Recognizing God's sovereignty and his providential action and trying to live in response to that is not the prosperity gospel. That if we do good in those situations, then we'll receive good from God. It's not a gospel of legalism that says, if I do good in that situation, then I will earn salvation from God. No, it's the true gospel that you, in all of your sin, drawn into salvation and then held in that salvation by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, cannot lose that. And so you're free to just be obedient and repent when you get it wrong See scripture, see the grace of God that saved you, see the truth of who Jesus is, see the bigness of who God is, and then humbly live as obediently as possible, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That means we seek to do all the good we can, knowing the situations are sometimes complex or that sometimes we blatantly choose to do the wrong thing in a straightforward situation, and yet grace saturates all of it. And the sovereignty of God is not thwarted by any of it, which means this. You can recognize coincidence is providence. Do all the good you can in all the places you land. Carry no expectations. Know that the plan of God moves by the hand of God and devote everything you do to the glory of God. How do we discern divine design in our lives? Well, if your vision of God is so big that a sovereign God is always sovereign, then every moment you engage in is by divine design. He's sovereign over that. 
And the grace of God that saved you and holds you in that salvation gives you the freedom to do all you can, all the good you can in that place as obedient and driven by the objective reality of scripture. To know for a fact that God's hand is going to move forward his plan regardless of your success or your failure in those things and to devote all of it to the glory of the Lord and trusting him to move his will forward. It's complicated. It can be messy at times. We'll get it wrong sometimes. But God is sovereign and he's always sovereign. And he will accomplish his plans and his purposes eternally, globally, but he'll also also accomplish his plans and his purposes in you personally and individually. And there is wonderful peace in seeing the grace of that and being able to live inside of it and to walk inside of it. Uh, We're gonna close with some time in worship. And we've, we've sung this song once already in this series. It kind of like tags in as like a little bit of, if we were to take one of the songs that we commonly sing here at LCF and say, this really summarizes what Esther in this series is all about. It's this song called Behold Our God. Behold our God seated on his throne. Come let us adore him. We see the bigness of who God is, that he is sovereign and always sovereign. At any moment, we can direct our heart to see him on his throne and be drawn in to worship him. Let's stand up and sing together.